Hi, everyone, and welcome to Brewing the Tea, a podcast hosted by Zha Zha Lao and Tony Liu, where we sit down with Taiwanese and Taiwanese American entrepreneurs and leaders to tell their stories and inspire the next generation. We're so delighted to have Jonathan Chen join us here today. Jonathan is the co-founder of Fiscal Note, a platform that collects and analyzes government data using cutting-edge ML and has raised over $300 million in funding to date from firms like NEA and angels like Mark Cuban and Jerry Yang. Today, Fiscal Note has over 5,000 customers, including Facebook, Nike, Uber, Lyft, McDonald's, and more. In addition, Jonathan is also the founder and CEO of Pathover, a logistics API company, and is the creator of the popular Instagram account, Hack University, which features educational content, resources, and tips for software engineers and designers. Today, we'll talk about how a cold email to Mark Cuban completely changed his life, his hot take on AWS, what he's been working on today, post-startups, and more. Jonathan, we're so excited to have you here today. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your background, about your family, where you grew up, your hobbies and interests, and what high school was like for you. So I grew up in Maryland, outside of the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And my, my family's background is Taiwanese, so both my parents came over to America in their 20s. And they moved over here in the, I think, 80s, 70s or 80s. And yeah, so they had me and I have one brother. I have a younger brother. And I was actually pretty whitewashed when I was in, I guess, middle school, high school, when I didn't truly discover my like Taiwanese identity until college, actually. So high school was kind of like I was hanging out with mostly non-Asians and then I did track and field a lot and actually did wrestling for a little bit. My grades were like normal. So I wasn't very ambitious in high school and middle school. That ambition came on later in, in college, actually. At what point did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? And do you think that your Taiwanese American background had some part in this? So growing up, of course, probably everyone um, with an Asian family background went through this, but like my parents, definitely just wanted me to do well in school and get a great job. My dad wanted me to be a lawyer, of course. Well, actually my mom wanted me to be a programmer. So I didn't really know, you know, computer stuff back then, but in ninth grade, my mom signed me up for um, a programming class, like programming 101 in ninth grade. And I was like, sure, you know, why not? I mean, I didn't know anything about computer science or programming. And I'm so glad she did that because I fell in love with computer programming when I, my freshman year of high school. So that's, that was like the only subject in high school that I really was passionate about. I actually liked programming and I had a really great teacher, but everything else I was like subpar, like I didn't really care. And it didn't help that the people I was hanging out with were not ambitious. You know, back then you just wanted to be higher up in the social status, I guess. So. Yeah, I didn't really focus that much on, on grades, and I'm so happy I got into Maryland, uh, University of Maryland. I truly believe the saying that you, know, you are the average of the five people you hang out with the most. And I truly definitely believe that because the people I hung out with high school were, they weren't as ambitious, like I said. So therefore, you know, I was kind of in the same circle. But when I went to college, the people I hung out with just completely changed. At the University of Maryland, we had like honors college. And I got into the honors college and I just started hanging out with everyone who just like was really great. Like they had basically perfect GPAs 
And my roommates in college, they they got full, both of them got full scholarships to University of Maryland. And they, you know, were just getting straight A's all the time. And I just hung out with them all the time. And one of them, his name is Dylan, he started a business in his senior high school. And it was like this email marketing business when email marketing was hot back in the early 2010s. It was like 2010, 2011. And he, one day he told me this, I was in, I was a sophomore. And he told me that he was running this company on the side and he was making like $10,000 a month. And I was like, what the hell? And like my, my whole goal when I was a freshman in college was to work at Google. And that's what my mom drilled in me. That's what the environment drilled into me. You know, you know, we gotta, I gotta work at Google. And then that was my freshman year. You know, I worked really hard because my goal was to work at Google. And then my sophomore year is when my friend Dylan exposed to me his business. He was just doing it for like five hours a week. And he was the one who introduced to me that there was another path that you can take. There was no whole nother world. And he taught me a lot of things and he introduced me to this world of entrepreneurship. And then at that moment, I was like, wow, what am I doing? I gotta, I gotta do more. And I literally, before then, I literally thought the only path was, you know, I gotta get a job at Google. Like that was my ultimate goal in life at that moment in time. And I didn't know that there was higher things that you can reach for. Once you had this experience, you know, it seems like you might have caught the entrepreneurship bug. What did you start to do in college after that? But that was actually around the time when the whole wave of entrepreneurship was starting to build up on all the apps and stuff. So I actually started to create things, build apps that didn't go anywhere, but I think a lot of it, the experiences accumulated. But basically I did everything that a college student would do. So I did like this book exchange app for the campus. I did like a, a tutor to t match app that I tried. I did a food, like when Grubhub was hot, I, I built like this clone of Grubhub and it, none of them went anywhere because I didn't know how to execute on the business side at all. But I think all those ideas are like things that you know, a lot of freshmen and sophomore do when they enter college. I was just trying to do these ideas. And the thing, thing I liked about myself back then was I did it and then I didn't, and it failed, but I just moved on to the next thing. And I didn't realize how, like, that's, that's a quality that you definitely need to have when you're, when you're trying a bunch of things. You just keep moving on and just keep trying things. And then ultimately my junior year after, you know, my junior year is when we, I started fiscal note with Tim and another one of my friends. Tell us about what happened that summer or I guess that spring to make you guys decide to drive all the way out of California and then start this company. So I love telling the story. Basically what happened was, like I said, I was trying all, all these ideas. I was a junior in college. And one problem back then I realized is that the partners I had, really, when any time there was a setback, they would just all give up. And looking back now, I realized, you know, those are qualities I don't want in co-founders, but I didn't know back then. So that's why I tried some ideas. I tried some ideas. And then when something goes wrong, my, the partners are like, oh, this is probably not going to work. And we just throw away the idea but with physical note so what happened was this was in 2013 in march and then one day my friend tim tim huang he's the ceo of physical note right now my other co-founder he was running a nonprofit organization that hosted an event in washington dc and he's my high school friend so i was friends with him since high school middle school and elementary school actually and i haven't seen him since high school because we kind of drifted apart during college and he invited me to go to this event in DC. So I go and we catch up 
This was like the end of March of 2013. And then during that catch up, he tells me about his idea for FiscalNet, which at that time he described it as machine learning for politics or Moneyball for politics. And he said, I'll do it when I graduate. And we were juniors in college. And that was kind of like the end of the conversation. That was when he, he told me the idea. And then about a week later, the computer science department at the University of Maryland hosted this pitch competition. And I get this email and I was like, well, I don't have any ideas right now, but the last idea that was in my mind was Tim's idea for physical note. So then I texted Tim, I called Tim, and I was like, hey, do you want to enter your idea in this competition? And then he's like, sure, why not? We have nothing to lose. So we put together a PowerPoint about the idea and then we submitted it in the competition and then they selected five finalists to come actually pitch. And we were selected. So we were selected one of, as one of the five finalists. So we're like, oh my God, this is great. So I go there and actually I, I pitch. Since Tim went to Princeton, I actually pulled him up on a computer on Skype during the actual pitch. And we ended up getting second place. So we actually, we won $1,500, which is a lot for a college student at that time. So then the judges came up to us and say, hey, this is a great idea. You should definitely do this. But you know, you didn't win first place because the first place person actually had an app and they were actually making money at that time. It was like a bus app and the founder folded it and works at Twitter right now. So we should have won that competition. <laughs> but anyways, but yeah, so after that moment, Tim and I were like, hmm, maybe we should actually pursue this idea. So we decided to apply to a bunch of accelerators. Now you naturally think that we would apply to like Y Combinator, but at that time it was like the end of April. So the deadline was already passed. So we didn't really have any we couldn't really apply to Y Combinator. And the number of accelerators were, that were opened were dwindling. So we did apply to the Plug and Play Tech Center in, in Silicon Valley in Sunnyvale. And we got into the Plug and Play. And I remember we got into the Plug and Play and we brought on a third co-founder. His name is Gerald. And we were all high school friends and all friends in middle school as well. So it was the three of us as co-founders. And I was the technical one. Tim was the CEO. And then Gerald was more like the ops and business side. And we, all three of us had internships. Now we didn't know what we were going to do that summer. We didn't know whether we were going to do the internship or do the accelerator because the accelerator took so long to get back to us. So plug and play, it got back to us the Friday before the Monday I was supposed to start my internship. So it was like June, right? And we were like, okay, we don't really know what to do. But then on Friday, one of the, the partners at plug and play, the main partner, his name is Ali Reza. He video chatted all three of us and he told us that he would like us to join the accelerator. And that was Friday, right? And then we we're like, okay, we rescinded the offers for the internship. So this was the middle of June in 2013. And we actually used the $1,500 that we got from the uh, competition to fly us over to California. And when we got there, we did the, we, we did the accelerator, which is basically a three month program at the plug and play. And they gave us $25,000 for 5% of the company. And it was a convertible note. We spent like a week looking for housing and we were just in a motel six the entire time because it was the cheapest option at that time. And we were looking everywhere. Everything was so expensive. No one was doing short term. If you wanted to do three months, it would cost like five, six K a month. And we're like, what the hell? You know, for, for three people, it was, it was crazy. So what, the motel six that we were staying at, while we only say, we only say there temporarily, because we were looking for housing. But then we realized at that time they had a deal for $470 a week. And we were like, oh my God, that's a great deal. 
So we decided to take up on that offer. They don't have that offer anymore, by the way. Uh, I've, I've checked because <laughs> it's Silicon Valley. But yeah, back in 2013, they had that really great weekly offer. So we decided to say, screw it, we'll stay at the Motel 6 for the entire summer. And then when we did the program, there was 20 other companies and we got the whole plug and play office space. It was open 24 hours, seven days a week, which was great because the office space was amazing. It has a kitchen, it had a lot of open space areas that we can work. And then a lot of other entrepreneurs. So it's a great um, place to be. And we basically just spent our entire summer there. So my job was to build the platform. Gerald's job was to find out what, what features to build for the product. He was calling like companies and getting feedback. Tim's job was the hardest. So Tim was going out there pitching every single day. We rented a car and he would drive to the offices and just pitch. And I will say that during that time, it was very, it was fun and stressful at the same time. It was fun because, you know, we were 21, we were kids back then. And occasionally we went to San Francisco and clubbing because we were 21. And then because a lot of people did internships in the Valley, we went to a lot of intern events at companies and that was pretty cool. But majority of the time we would just sit in the office and um, work basically an entire day. So we worked, we actually worked seven days the entire week. We, we only took breaks when, you know, when there were like events at night and we just went to those events. So every morning we would wake up and walk from the Motel 6, 30 minutes all the way to plug and play. And then we walked back at night and there was a 7-Eleven that was open 24 seven. So we'd stop at the 7-Eleven and just eat really crappy food. And we did that for a whole summer. And when I look back now, it was kind of sad in a way because every day Tim would come back and he would tell us that we get rejected. We just get rejected like from investors and VCs left and right. Cause honestly, we were just kids. We had an idea, but we're not serial entrepreneurs or anything. So like we didn't really catch anyone's eye. And basically the whole summer was pretty much that. Like Tim would come back every day and be like, nope, no one's interested, no one's interested. And towards the last week, like in August, after being there for two and a half months, we were getting ready to throw in the towel. And we, you know, we say, hey, this was a great summer because we did all the cool intern things that all the other friends are doing. But, you know, we work on this idea, experience, had this new experience, everything was great. And it was like a week before we had to go back to school, our senior year of college. And uh, so then it was like the Friday, again, before we were supposed to go back, Tim was like, I'm going to send uh, a, a pitch email to just all these random emails that I found. And this was our last email being sent out. So that was in the morning. So at nighttime, we, had, we were eating Korean barbecue and we were about to watch the movie, The Wolverine. And then Tim got an email back from one of the investors that we sent a cold email in the morning and it was Mark Cuban. So Mark Cuban responded and he basically said one line, he's like, I'm interested, tell me more. That was literally it. And we're like, oh my God, Mark Cuban responded, oh my God. So we paused and we sent an email back while we're eating dinner. And then we told him a little bit more and then he emails immediately back like in a couple of minutes and he asks us for more information. And we're like, oh my God, okay, we can't watch this movie. We drove back to the plug and play office and we just spent the entire night just emailing back Mark Cuban. <clears throat> And, you know, getting all these docs. And he actually had this specific Mark Cuban business plan um, that he wanted. It was like A through Z, you know, one through 10. It was a lot of stuff. And it literally took us the entire night. And we sent it to him at like 2 or 3 a.m. 
And then he emails us back. He's like, oh, thanks guys. I'll get back to you after the weekend. And we're like, we're like, where is he in the world? Is he awake right now in, in Dallas or something? So we were wondering that because it must have been like 4 a.m. in the morning. So I don't know. Maybe he's just, he's just a workaholic. So then after the weekend, we were really nervous. And we were like, what just happened? And then Mark Cuban emails us, CC and his lawyer. And he's like, I really like you guys and your idea. What are your terms? And we're like, oh, God, here we go. We're, it's time to negotiate with Mark Cuban. So, you know, after talking about it, we, what we do is we look at other startups that are kind of similar. And we're like, we're trying to raise $740,000 at a $5 million um, post money valuation. And then he emails back and says, I'll do 740 at a $4 million post money valuation. And then, so Tim and I were like, let's just do it. Let's not argue. Let's just do it. But then Gerald was like, hold up guys, hold up guys. I took a negotiations class in college. So we argued back and forth whether we should negotiate with Mark Cuban or not. And then Gerald finally convinced us and said, you guys should meet in the middle. So we're like, okay, fine, Gerald. So we emailed back Mark Cuban and we're like, okay, let's, let's do 740 at 4.5 um, post money valuation. Looking back now, it really doesn't matter. But like back then we were, we were so picky. And then he emails back saying, deal, let's do it. And then after that moment, me, Tim and Gerald were like, oh my God, really what the hell just happened? And then at, after that, we reached back out to like a crap ton of investors that we pitched before that rejected us. And then we got a little bit more money. So we got uh, money from AME, Cloud Ventures, you know, Jerry Yang, we got money from NEA um, and then various other smaller angel investors to eventually close a $1.2 million seed round. And that all happened during the week before we went back to school. So that was a, a hell of a summer. So I went back to college. And the funny part is we didn't tell Mark Cuban that we were college students, which I learned later on that, you know, investors hate college students. Well, they hate college students because, you know, you're in college, you should be spending 110% of your time doing your startup, not 50% of your time studying. So, so we decided, you know, we got to spend more time doing fiscal note. And Gerald dropped out of college, he went to Emory in Atlanta. So he kind of had to drop out. And we based the operation in Maryland, Bethesda at that time, slash Washington, D.C. And I went to University of Maryland, so I was a really quick drive to the office. When we went back to school, things were, were crazy. Like, I actually became a, a mini celebrity on campus for raising money um, from our Cuban. And it was all over the news. And I was in an entrepreneurship program called the Hinman CEOs, and they were, like, really proud to have me there. But the thing is, like, the entire school year, I was at the office. I like drove like at 7 a.m. Like I would wake up and just go to the office and then I would come back at 10 or 11 p.m. at night. And I only went back to take one class and then drove back to the office. So the entire senior year was actually really crappy when I think about it, because it was just work. It wasn't really like a senior year. And like people want to start businesses in college, but actually if I were to do it again, I wouldn't do it in college because a lot of the fun things happened that I missed out on my senior year. But you know, I found this company, so I guess it was like a trade-off. So I usually tell people it's not all fun and games. It's a lot of work and you just get used to the grind. Like seven days a week of working is normal. I just work every day. And it got a little bit more difficult because of raising the money, like that was one hurdle. Like we got, we got there. But then the next hurdle was we started to get employees and we started hiring people. And that was a whole new world to us, basically. It, now you have people problems and then it's a whole different world from then on. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah.
So if you could sum up this whole note, how would you describe it? I think of it as a platform that allows businesses to understand government and the movement of government by understanding who's following what different types of regulations and legislation, who's supporting what, and just understanding if a certain piece of legislation or regulation affects one's business or industry. So basically a platform that helps um, businesses understand the impact and influence of government, government action, essentially. As a student during your senior year, how did you approach hiring people? How did you approach building an engineering team? And what are some interesting or relevant learnings from those days? People always ask me this question. They ask me, is it hard to hire people who are more talented and older than you? Will they, will they not listen to you? You know, will they not respect you because you're younger and you're less experienced? And that's what I thought in the beginning, but it actually turned out to be the opposite. If you're a really young founder and you accomplish a good amount, they actually respect you a lot more. They're like, wow, you did all these things and you're only, you know, 21, 22 years old. And that's what I found. At least the people that we hired, everyone really respected us as founders, even though we all had, like me, Tim and Gerald, we knew that we were at that time, like we were kids, we didn't know what we were doing. But for some reason, everyone believed in us because I guess we did accomplish, we did end up raising money and we did pull through. So for anybody who's listening to this, if you have any doubts about hiring people older and more experienced than you, they will definitely respect you more than you think. So hiring, like on, in the beginning, we, I just hired people I knew, like other students actually. But then later on, we, we approached a little bit more experienced folks. And I went to a lot of events in DC. And I got involved heavily in the DC tech scene. At one point back then, I, I knew every CTO from all the other companies in the DC area. Back to the Mark Cuban part. What do you think Mark Cuban saw in you guys when he you know, heard your initial pitch? What did he see that the other VCs couldn't see at that time? One thing I think he liked about us was our approach. So he was really into AI and machine learning at that time. And when we pitched the fact that we were doing that with politics, I think one that caught his eye. I remember one of the items he asked for was like, is a really detailed um, analysis and description explanation of our technology and our algorithms. And we like compile like this two page, very detailed summary of what we do. And I think that was like the, the breaking point. He just really loved the technology. And then maybe he just saw three hustlers, like three, three kids. Really, what did he do when he found out that you were all in college? I don't think he cared. Like in the end, like he definitely knows, he definitely knows now, but it doesn't matter because we definitely made him a lot of money. So <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. It doesn't matter in the end. It's kind of like fake it till you make it, even though that's, that is the saying in Silicon Valley. It's a really bad saying, but it's happens a lot. And it, it's like, no, if you do something, it, this is like the sad truth about entrepreneurship sometimes. If you do something sketchy, it's only sketchy if you fail in the end. But if you do well, then people will get mad at you, but it doesn't matter because your, your success kind of like overshadows the things you did in the past, which is kind of like a sad thing, but that's just the way this world works. Yeah, for sure. And so today, looking at physical note, you know, how much money have you guys raised total? I mean, how many employees do you guys have? How many office locations? Are you guys an IPO soon, if you can answer that? <laughs> yeah, let's see. We, we have been operating for seven and a half years. Our main headquarters is in Washington, D.C. We have offices in New York, Baton Rouge, Belgium, 
Brussels and Korea and Seoul. And uh, let's see, we have about close to 500 employees with like 450, I think. And then we raised around close to 300 million. So, and, wow. and we're, we're trying to IPO in the next two years. So hopefully we make it. That's awesome. And who are these customers that you guys sell to today? Like who are some examples? I think we have like 5,000 customers ish, maybe more, but basically some of our customers include like, you know, startups like uh, Uber Lyft, we have Facebook as well, McDonald's, one of our customers, Nike, and then like a lot of government. So we cater to government affairs divisions of companies, basically, you know, like those divisions are important for understanding like how the government impacts their business, right? So like we target those divisions. Then we got like nonprofits and universities sometimes like the University of Virginia Law School um, and like uh, nonprofits if that gives you like a general idea of who our customers are. I guess what's some advice that you would give to students today who are interested in entrepreneurship? What would you tell them? There's a lot, there's a lot of stuff. Like the first thing I would say is that you cannot give up like when shit happens. Like, like, like the first six ideas I had, I can tell you like the people I was with, like I told you before, they just give up when anything bad happens. Any setback, anything that, you know, that they think that something will go wrong, then you just stop. You give up and you say, this is too much or it's not, it's not working. But I can tell you with fiscal note, we ran into somewhere, for example, like we got rejected every single day and when we were in the Valley. And after a certain point, you just, it's just normal. And it t- we probably pitched over 200 people. And then one person got back to us and that's the winner. So the way I think about it is if you're pitching, you're one pitch away from raising money. It might take you three months. It might take you seven years. I actually know one guy. I know one guy who was pitching for seven years. You really have to be passionate about it or you really have to just find people who are, who just every problem there is, you take it as like, a, like you just get over it. Like at this point, I can tell you that whatever I do right now, I expect a lot of problems to happen. I expect bad things to happen. My first thought is, all right, how do I solve this? Versus, okay, I should give up now. Or this is not going to work. Like your first thought should be, your first thought should always be, how do I solve this? Right? That's the difference between successful people and non-successful people. That, that quality I just described to you, like just having the grit and being persistent is probably one of the most important qualities. Like the best entrepreneurs I know, like they don't take no for an answer. And whenever crap happens, they always figure it out. And actually the best people I know, like they don't listen to people who doubt them all the time. They, can't, they separate themselves from those type of people because they just drag you down. So if you're surrounded by people who always tell you you can't do it or it's too hard or like, why are you doing that? Then you got to separate yourself from them because it just weighs you down. So you have to remove them out of your life and then focus on yourself. Even if you fail, like you will learn a lot of stuff. Like I failed or I made a lot of mistakes and failed many times. And those are where you learn the most. So like it's, it's failure is definitely required. Like it's definitely required. Like I know that you're going to, fail a bunch of things when you do a startup. I mean, I think those are really good points. And it's definitely interesting to see how you have probably through your life now gone through many, 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 many different you know, ideas and you know, picked a couple that you really, really persisted on. That uh, makes a lot of sense. 
I, I guess, how do you spend your time now? And you know, you know what's next for you? Yeah, so I'm actually working on a lot of stuff now. Physical, you know, the goal is IPO. But what I'm also realizing is I think in the next decade, like, I think there's a huge weight on like digital assets. When I say digital assets, I mean, investing in, for example, like a YouTube channel or like something that can get you uh, residual income in, in a way or like help build like an audience in which you can market to or sell to. So like Instagram page or whatnot. And those are, those are digital assets. And I say this because I think it's really important to establish a presence in the digital world. But you don't have to be, you can start from scratch and build a brand. It's actually the same thing as building a business. If you build it, like if you grew an Instagram page from zero to a hundred thousand, that's the same thing as like building a business. But you know, the product is actually the, the content and your audience is like the followers. And if you invest in that, you invest in that brand and then you in and in, in the future if you have that audience it's like having an app right like when you have the audience you can do anything with the audience you guys are venture capitalists right like like when the the even if the company is losing money if they have the users there's so much potential to grow because you can sell the users and upsell users and things so a lot a smaller scale of that is like digital assets if you have a youtube channel with many subscribers, or if you have an e even an email subscriber list, you have an email subscriber list with hundreds of thousands of people on it, then you can just send the 100,000 people an email and bam, or like a text message. So I'm trying to build those channels right now. And I invested a lot of my money in building like these, these channels and pages. So one of them is called Hack University, which is like a tech and design page. And I'm investing my money into building that brand for the future. And it, you can check it out at Hack University for Instagram. And we're trying to build a YouTube channel. So that's why I actually think, like, I'm actually really tired of startups, to be honest with you. Um, it's, it's not that I don't want to, like, it's just, I guess I've, I've been there, done that. And it's very exhausting. And I want to sit back and not manage people. How about, how about that? I think when you get to hundreds of people, like, it's just, a, a huge headache to, you know, deal with operations, people operations. That's me. That's my personal opinion. Some people love managing, right? So that, that's not me. I'm technical and I actually love marketing. I like doing like social media stuff and like growing social media channels. And because I think that's a challenge that doesn't involve like huge teams. Here's another, oh, here's another thing I learned. So if you want to build an app or anything, like <laughs> you don't want your business to be at the mercy of your tech. So engineers are divas. They're complete divas. They work four hours a day. They get paid like you know, a lot of money. I, I know a lot of, anyone who's listening to this, you work at Google, Microsoft, you're working four hours a day. You're not actually working that, that eight hours. And you're the divas in these companies. So you get paid a lot and you don't do that much work, but you're like really smart, right? So like when you start companies, oftentimes they're started by tech founders, right? And I made the same mistake. What happened is you want to use all the coolest technologies. You want to use things that are, you know, like that everyone's talking about on Stack Overflow or like all these blogs and people are like talking about these new cool technologies. You want to put it in your app because it's cool. And what will happen when you do that is you will screw over your business in the long term because you'll it'll just it'll become a lot of technical debt. You're choosing things that are cool, but instead of choosing things that should work. For the business and that are stable 
and you ended up doing a lot of maintenance. And then if you quit, then someone else has to come in and basically fix your work. So what happens to a lot of startups that I've noticed is they, they build really bad infrastructure based off of engineers who have shiny object syndrome. So shiny object syndrome is when you just lash on any cool new library or cool new technologies and you just want to put it in your app because it's fun to work on. And we definitely made this mistake at Fiscal Morning. We're paying for it at the current moment. We have to rewrite everything. And But for Pathover, I did not make that mistake. So what happens if you make this mistake, you'll spend probably 50% to 70% of your time just fixing bugs and firefighting, which affects the speed of getting features out, which affects sales and business. So in the end, because you're doing these cool things, you're hurting the business. And I guarantee you, like 70% of startups are like this. I guarantee you, like, because the business folks don't understand it. But coming from like business and tech, I can see both sides. So what we did for the newer projects for Fiscal Note is we started with good, stable infrastructure. And now they're spending 90% of their time building features instead of fixing bugs. So my advice, I'm going to get a lot of hate for this from engineers, but one advice I gave is don't use AWS, Amazon Web Services. And the reason is because you have to figure everything out. And it's like building your own computer instead of buying a computer that works. And a lot of engineers like to do this. They want AWS because it's cool. It's the thing, it's the thing, but you have to be an expert in it. And 99% of engineers are not experts in AWS. So what happens is that they will build, they'll configure all these things and it will break like 90% of the time. And you have to hire these DevOps people who also don't know what they're doing. And then you hire these consultants and it's wasting money and then it just becomes all this spaghetti crap. So what I suggest is use a managed service like Heroku. And you literally spend like $50 a month and you don't have to worry about any of that. And it just works. So then the engineering is actually spent building features for the business versus firefighting all the time, fixing configuration because Heroku is like, you're buying the computer, but AWS is you're buying the parts you need to put it together. If you don't put it together and you screw up, you basically screwed everything up. So at Fiscal Note, we made this huge mistake and we're paying for it very heavily. We spent like 60, 70% of the time just fixing bugs on AWS. We're actually making the whole switch to Heroku and a lot of engineers are really angry because they're like, what is Heroku? But in reality, it's more beneficial for the business. And I know this because I use Heroku for Pathover and like Pathover, one, like we had one engineer, it's basically me, built the whole entire thing on just Heroku and I don't have a DevOps team. And I spend like literally 10 times less money, but the amount of requests and the amount of um, traffic I can handle is literally like a thousand times more than than fiscal note. It's because Heroku just does it. It just handles it and I can sleep at night. This is just like a, a rant I have for people who are starting out and they're using her they're using AWS because the engineer is saying that that's the thing. Like I preached against it. We actually recently hired a CTO for fiscal note who has been in the industry for like many years who actually preaches the same thing because he sees the same problems. So that's just another piece of advice. A lot of engineers are probably not like me for that, but that's just the way it is. Like I'm running a business right now, Pathover, virtually no like maintenance costs because it's on a Roku. That's just one example. So yeah, I was ranting there. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, by the way. Definitely seeing that syndrome of wanting to build things from scratch or like do what is most hardcore, <laughs> often yeah. at the expense of other things like you described. So not surprising at all. I think it's a, definitely a good lesson. So I think that's all the questions. So we just have the fun ones at the very end. <laughs> yep. So what's your favorite kind of tea? 
funny thing, I actually don't like tea. <laughs> I just Do you like coffee? Yeah. I don't like coffee either. <laughs> no caffeine. Uh, no, yeah, no caffeine. Yeah, I don't like cool. I don't like tea for some reason or or, co- or uh, coffee. I mean, I don't You're like coffee either. Stay awake. <laughs> I actually so what I do is actually just take short naps. I don't like to drink things. So like I usually so funny thing at Fiskuno we have an office. I just go to my car and sleep for fifteen minutes, and then I'm back up, and I'm ready to work. That's wow, why I actually awesome. do. Yeah. That's awesome. What's your favorite kind of Taiwanese food? Oh man. Oh this. Oh man. <laughs> okay, so it really depends on which store, so which restaurant. But there's this Nyoromian shop in Taiwan. It's literally just called like I think beef noodle. But it's like it's called Nyoromian Jitang. I don't know if you heard of it. <laughs> That's the name of this the store. It's like somewhere in. It's like right near Zhongshou, Donghua. They actually have two stores, but like that is like the best beef noodle I've ever had in my life. And I actually don't like beef noodle soup in general. But then when I tasted that one, I'm like, I love this. Is like amazing because the broth is so good, the noodles are so great. It's the name of it is literally it's called Nyoromian, and there's like a like a bullet in between, and then like Jitang. That's that's their name. You can ever look it up. Their reviews are crazy. So, yeah, <laughs> that's, there's so much stuff. Yeah, there's so much stuff. Like I like Tony. It's the Roman dot. Yeah, well, it's like a bullet. So it's not like a dot where it's like lower. It's like a centered bullet. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like they don't actually have a name. That's literally their name. It's like a hole in the wall story. That's how you know it's good. So, <laughs> especially in Taiwan, like in Asia, right? Like the hole in wall stores are like the best. But it's the complete opposite in like America. Yeah, um, that's true. So funny. Okay, and then last question: What's your favorite thing to do in Taiwan? Oh man! Wow, I, I love being in Taiwan. Taiwan's my favorite country to be in. I, w- I wish I could live there. I mean, food is just on a different, whole different level than America. Just so you can you can go anywhere. Favorite thing to do. Favorite thing to do. I think like Hualien and Taichung are like the most beautiful places. Like I can probably just I would just go there and enjoy the beaches, um, the blue waters. Like, but like if I were to do like something like right now, I'd probably just go to go to one of those two places and go go to like what's that? There's like an island near Taichung, something that you can ferry to. But yeah, it's like maybe bike along the coast. So yeah, I don't know. Favorite thing to do probably just go to night markets, eat food, eat food. How about just eat food? Eat food in Taiwan. That's like, like I miss the food so much. I miss the food so much, guys. That's a good answer. That is also my answer, probably. So yeah, um, there's so much cool. to eat there. My God. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast today, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. And yeah, I think the listeners will have a lot to learn. Love your rants. Love the <laughs> AWS hate. Oh, and love- yeah, and so I think people will really I'm enjoy get, it. Thank yeah. you. I'm going to get a lot of hate for the AWS comment, but I stand <laughs> behind. I don't use AWS. Use Heroku. Your business will thank you for it. Like, I guarantee your business will thank you for it. Uh, I've done this so many times. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it as well. No, yeah, so thank you. No problem.
No problem. It's a pleasure having you.